Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter number 16. 1 Samuel chapter number 16. And uh, we'll cover the whole chapter tonight. And of course, the fun thing about preaching when Pastor Tyler's gone is that you, you don't really have to worry about what passage you choose. It's chosen for you, you're right? We're just plugging along series. The hard thing about preaching when Pastor Tyler's gone is that the passage is chosen for you. And believe it or not, uh, I'm, maybe this reveals my lack of Bible knowledge or whatever, but I got this passage. This is a classic text in the Old Testament. You'll see this in a moment. And I thought, how do I preach this thing? But I'm so excited tonight that I, I really feel like God has something for us. I was mightily encouraged in my study of this passage, and I hope you will be. I was challenged. And I've told the message tonight, when God looks for a leader, I want you to look at verse number one of 1 Samuel 16. It says this, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite. I want you to look at verse number, the last part, very carefully. For I have provided, what's the next word? Me, a king among his sons. When God looks for a leader. They say in in business and in hiring, HR work, that the hardest position to fill in most organizations is leadership positions. The reason is, is that there's a lot that goes into being a leader in an organization. And, and many of you know, if you've got a bad leader, it's kind of hard to stick around at a workplace. How many of you testify to that? Some of you are like, is my boss here? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's really important who you have leading people because your supervisor can make your life really great or really miserable. A supervisor that is good can propel a company forward or can hold a company back. And so when you're filling spots in the job place, man, one of the hardest place, places they say to fill is that leadership spot. And of course, the higher up you go, the more complex it is. In fact, some companies, um, they have hired full-time, well-paid people called headhunters. Now, I don't know why they have to have such a gruesome name, Because these headhunters, all they do is recruit leadership positions high up in corporations. And their full-time job is to schmooze people that they think could be a potential leader in their organization. The other challenging thing about recruiting leaders is, I mean, what makes a good leader? You you look it up on a website, you're going to get 20 different answers because there's so much that goes into it. I mean, I, I just looked at one HR website that Here's what, if you want a good leader, here's what they say you'll need in a leader. You need vision, right? The world is changing and we need leaders that change and develop strategies with our changing world. They say you need a leader that's good at communication. How many of you have suffered from bad communication from a leader? Influence, right? You want someone who can influence. Decision-making, analytics, someone who can look past what's obvious and understand what's going on. Adaptability. 
right? And, and you could look on a lot of job descriptions on all sorts of websites. And the list of requirements and leaders can often be as long as your computer screen will allow. There's a lot of things people look for in a leader. But would you, would you agree with this church that what we see on the outside isn't the only thing that matters? Because you can have all the outward qualifications of a leader. But if something's messed up in the heart, a leader can bring a lot of destruction. And that's what Israel found out, didn't they? Because God's first plan for Israel, as far as leadership goes, was not to be led by a person, right? It was to be led by who? God, right? It was to be led by God, and then Samuel was the prophet, and he was kind of God's mouthpiece. But Israel didn't like that, did they? They looked around them, and they saw that the other nations they went to war with, when they went to war, they were led by a king, And there's something inspiring as people we kind of want someone to look to as an example of courage in the face of adversity. And so Israel looked around. They said, well, hold on a second. All these nations have this this human leader that leads them into battle. And our leader is an old guy with a Bible. That's not very inspiring when I have to go and risk my life on the battlefield. And so they said, God, we want a king. And if you read that passage closely, back earlier in 1 Samuel, you'll find that God allowed them to have a king, but he he said, I'm going to give you a king that is after the desires of your own heart. And so who did he give them? Well, Saul. Because what did Israel want? They wanted someone who looked like a king, who acted the part. And Saul did it very well. Right? He was head and shoulders above everyone else. I believe the word that the Bible uses is he was goodly. He looked nice. He was a handsome man. He was tall, dark, and handsome. And they thought, this is our king. We've got the king. When we go into battle, he's going to lead us. And we'll all have courage in the face of adversity. And what they came to find out is while they may have had a leader that looked good on the outside, he was wicked in his heart. And it was his heart that caused them a lot of problems. Because it was his evil heart that put the nation at odds with their God. It was his evil heart that caused him to rebel, clearly rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And so what they found out is this man who had a wicked heart turned out to be irrational, selfish, and he put Israel at risk. And so... Eventually, God had enough. Look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 28. Of course, we studied this the last several weeks, and and here's what Samuel said to Saul. Basically, enough's enough, Saul. Verse 28, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine. I like this part. (laughs) This makes me laugh a little bit. That is better than thou. How would you like it if your employer said, hey, not only am I firing you, but I've already hired someone who's better than you. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think the words there are a little intentional because Saul was very proud. And God said, I'm done with you, Saul. And so look at verse number one. Samuel says, or sorry, God says to Samuel, hey, how long are you going to mourn over this? Because here's the thing. Samuel invested his life in Saul. He ministered to Saul personally. And there's probably a lot that's not recorded 
recorded in scripture, but I imagine that there was a lot more personal interaction between Samuel and Saul than we just see in the pages of scripture. And so here's Samuel, he's mourning because here's the thing, leadership transitions are kind of difficult. And Samuel didn't know what was ahead for the nation of Israel. And so I'm sure his mourning was personal grief over Saul, but also a little bit, he didn't know what was gonna happen to their nation. Because if you wanna put a nation in jeopardy, let a king die or let a king be pulled out from his throne and that's when you put a nation in jeopardy. And you know what God says at the end of verse number one? I, I, I honed in on that when we read it because the wording is very intentional. He says, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite <clears throat> for I have provided me a king among his son, sons. Don't miss what God is saying. He's saying this. Your first king... I let you choose. Now God chose him, but God chose a king that he knew they wanted. And here's what God is saying. This time, I choose. Amen. And here's the question of 1 Samuel 16. When God looks for a king, what is the kind of person he chooses? When God's on the recruiting website, what is the type of leader that God is drawn to? When God has something in his work, in his harvest field, that he needs to get done, what is the kind of person God looks to to get it done? We find the answer in 1 Samuel 16. And here's what we're going to find. The text is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 13 show us the type of leader that God looks for. <clears throat> and then in verses 14 through 23, here's what it shows us. What does God do when he finds that leader? What does God do to prepare that man and to send out that person and equip him for the job that God has called him to? And so God says, Samuel, I want you to look for a king. <clears throat> and Samuel's next reaction is, look at verse two. <laughs> he says, how can I go? If Saul will hear it, he will kill me. Now, I, I want to stop there. Don't you think the Lord thought of that? Like, I think God knew, yeah, you serve an irrational, crazy man. But Samuel's here, he's, he's kind of wigged out. He's like, God, listen, as if God didn't know this. If I go and I find Saul's replacement, he's going to kill me. Now, Saul's known to throw spears at people he's threatened by, right? We find that later in the book. And so God, I think, kind of acquiesces to Samuel and says, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll be nice to you. Go take a heifer. Verse number two, he says, take an heifer with thee and say, I'm come to sacrifice to the Lord. And, and look at verse number three. Samuel did that which the Lord spake. So he comes to Bethlehem, to the city where Jesse's family is at. And aren't you thankful that God kind of narrowed it down, Right? I mean, there's millions of people, and God says, just go to the family of Jesse. And so he comes to the city of Bethlehem, and the people are as fearful of Samuel as Samuel is of Saul. Look at verse number three, or sorry, verse number four. <clears throat> and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, comest thou peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I'm come to sacrifice unto the Lord. So here's basically what Samuel's doing. He's hiding behind this cow. He's saying, listen, listen. I'm not here to appoint a king, I promise. I'm here to offer a sacrifice. See, look at this large cow. I am here to sacrifice to you. Here's the timeless truth. Sometimes preachers lie. I'm just kidding. 
<clears throat> so Samuel comes in. He's offering this sacrifice. And, and the Lord wants him to anoint the next king. And so, I don't know, he asked for directions. Hey, where's, where's Jesse at? Let me find this guy. Let me find his household. And he comes to the household of Jesse. And look at verse, end of verse number five. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and he called them to the sacrifice. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure how this happened, but in some way, Jesse paraded his sons in front of Samuel. I imagine maybe there was a line, or maybe he set aside the living room and set up two chairs, and Eliab walks in the room. I want you to look at verse number six. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab, and he said, what's the next word, church? Surely. Surely. The Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel was absolutely sure he found him. Now hold up. Samuel is supposedly the godliest person in the nation of Israel. And he is absolutely convinced that this is the guy. Now we don't find much about Eliab in this verse, but I want you to jump down at verse number seven. When God responds to him, God cares so much about finding a king that is the type of king God wants that he stops Samuel in his tracks. I mean, Samuel's got the bottle of oil and he's about ready to dump it, right? And God says, no, I've refused him. And here's what he says. Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature because I've refused him. Here's what God is saying. Samuel, I know he looks good. He says he was tall. He says, Samuel, you're looking at the wrong things. <clears throat> you know that even the godliest among us have perspectives that are not always godly perspectives. Listen, you could be saved for a long time, but that doesn't mean that you are not subject to a human bias that does not line up with God's perspective. And so here's what God is saying. Samuel, you've got it all mixed up. When I look for a king, I don't look for someone who's outwardly impressive. I look for someone who's inwardly submissive. And so God, I think, kind of took over, you know. And so they parade the other sons. And verses 8 and 9 say, well, he looks at this guy. Nah, this isn't the king. Looks at this guy. No, this isn't the one the Lord's chosen. In verse 10, it says this. And again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen these. So presumably, <clears throat> they're in a room. It's Jesse, his seven sons. All of them go before. And Samuel's thinking, what gives? God told me, the household of Jesse, seven sons, no more sons. Where's this king? And so he finally is like, okay, hold on a second. Verse 11. And Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? Now, I want you to pay attention and read between the lines with Jesse's response. And he says, here's how I interpret it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, oh, yeah, isn't the King James, but, you know, I'm preaching. Any of you ever felt like a David? Were you the any of you felt like the kid who mom on purpose left at the grocery store sometimes? That's David. Here's what, here's what the record here is saying. 
David was so insignificant, even in his own family, that when Samuel shows up and says, Jesse, I would like to meet your sons. God has a special purpose for one of them. I'd like to anoint them. Now, he didn't tell them that it was for the kingship, but he said, I have a special purpose for one of your sons. I'd like to anoint them. That David was so insignificant, Jesse didn't even think to get him. He says, oh, yeah, that, I have, yeah, I have another son. I forgot, sorry. You know, he's out in the back. He's taking care of the sheep. And I almost wonder if his response at verse number uh, 12, or sorry, verse number 11, is almost like he's saying to Samuel, like, yeah, I have another son keeping sheep, but he's keeping sheep, so let's not even worry about it. You know, you ever, like, someone asks you to do something and you give an excuse, like, Here's the reason why this is not something we should do. So Samuel's like, are all, here are all your sons. I think what Jesse's kind of saying, basically, yeah, there's that kid who keeps the sheep, but don't worry about him. Well, here, Samuel doesn't, you know, obviously settle for that. He says, go get him, right? I'm not even sitting down until you get him. And he brings in um, David in verse number 12. And the Bible describes David. It says, now he was ruddy. And with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. Now, here's what I think verse 12 is written to show us. That it's not altogether a bad thing if someone is outwardly attractive or someone has outward uh, positive impressions or outward qualifications. But ultimately, that's not what matters. That's not what God cared about in David. David could have been ugly as a rock, but God still would have chosen him. He just happened to be good looking. And here's what happens. Samuel sees David and he said, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. So what is this passage teaching us? Because we see Samuel and he's immediately drawn to someone who's outwardly impressive. He's drawn to someone that, that has all the outward qualifications to be a king. But God shows us through this narrative in verses 1 through 13 that God is attracted to a different type of person. That when God is looking for someone to accomplish his work, he's not looking for someone who's outwardly impressive. God is looking for someone who's spiritually submissive to him. And that's the main idea of the text, that men look for leaders who are outwardly impressive. But God looks for leaders who are spiritually submissive. You know, isn't that the exact reason that Saul was about to bring his kingdom to ruins? Because Saul was a man who was outwardly impressive, but Saul was not a man who was spiritually submissive. And we see other kings of Israel, and you want a just quick lesson in Israeli history? Look at the kings who were spiritually submissive, and their kingdoms did well. Look at the men and the kings who were spiritually rebellious and every single time God brought their kingdom down. In fact, God was so committed to this principle that he would bring his people into captivity for their own rebellion. And so this passage is written, I think, as a correction to our flawed thinking. Because like I said earlier, pay attention to this. You could be the most godly person in this room. But you know what? Samuel was the most godly person in the room. And even Samuel had a tendency to be drawn to outwardly impressive people and to miss the person God had chosen. Because God wasn't looking for someone who was outwardly impressive. God was looking for someone who had inward submission to God, who was qualified in their heart. 
I mean, there's not a lot of ways that this plays out. Like, it's not like we get to anoint our king, right? And we already chose our pastor, you know? But I've always been interested, like in 1 Timothy 3, that when God lists the qualifications for the pastor, that a lot of church search resumes and job descriptions would be really messed up if they actually read 1 Timothy 3. Because you go... And you look at those websites and those job postings, and they have every sort of qualification you could think of, right? Age qualifications and all sorts of things like that. And when you turn to 1 Timothy 3, you know what God looks for when he looks for a man to lead his people? Most of the qualifications are directed to what? The heart. I want a man who's blameless. I want a man who leads his family well. I want a man who's not given to anger, who's not a drunkard. All these things are things on the heart. And so when God looks for people to lead his church, he looks for people who are spiritually submissive, who are qualified in their heart, not people who are outwardly impressive. Now, God likes to use people like that too, but ultimately that's not really what God cares about. When we vote like we did a couple weeks ago uh, for spiritual leaders in our church, like trustees, you know what we should be looking at first before we get to the external qualifications is who are some people who have a heart for God? And yes, like trustees, we should be looking at some financial qualifications because these people manage a $1 million budget. But first, we look at the qualifications of the heart, right? Can I say this to, to some of our young people, some of our singles who, who maybe will have the opportunity and the privilege to choose someone who will be a spiritual leader in your home, like a husband, like a, a wife who will lead your children? Can I just challenge you? Pay attention so closely. Don't be drawn to people just because they're outwardly impressive. Don't be drawn to a spouse just because they're outwardly impressive. Hey, listen, you should probably be attracted to the person you're going to spend your life with. That's probably a good idea. But the first thing you should be looking at is someone who has a heart for God. Because here's the thing. I could tell you this with my long, long, vast amount of marital history for like six and a half years, that the thing that makes a difference in your marriage is not looks. It's a heart for God. You know what keeps my wife and I together and pushing forward in our marriage? When I'm dumb and I mess up, it's her heart for God. You know what keeps us going through the trials of life when those could be such major setbacks in some marriages? You know what's kept us through financial difficulty? It's not outward appearances. It's not outward impressions. It has been a heart for God that has helped us navigate through that. Can I get some couples to testify tonight that the thing that has made the difference in our marriage has been two people who at their core just wanna please God. They're not perfect people, but if you have two people who wanna honor God, who have an inwardly submissive heart to God, somehow God makes it work. But the tale could be told of a lot of people who were drawn to the outward appearance, who chose their leader like Samuel was about to. And you know what they found out they had? They didn't have a David. They were married to a Saul. And God just challenged you, when God gives you the opportunity to look for a leader, look for a leader based on the same criteria God has not based on your own human bias, because as humans, all of us are drawn to the outward. But you know what else encourages me about this text? 
Because, again, we don't have a lot of opportunities where we select a king or select a leader. But here's how I wrote it down in my notes. That God can and will use me if I just have a submissive heart to him. I'm going to say that again. I encourage you to write this down and think about it tonight. That it doesn't matter what you have on the outside. God can and God will use you if all you have is a submissive heart. Isn't that encouraging? It's about two months ago, we announced to the church that our family's going to go start a church in Garden City, Kansas. We're excited. Let's go. Be, I'll just be honest, church. There are seasons where I, I battle with insecurity about that. Because frankly, you know, I know Pastor Tyler stands up here and he's like, you know, I look good and, you know, I'm handsome. But when I stand up here, I can't even joke like that because that's not even remotely close to true. No one has ever said Mike Collins is outwardly impressive. And sometimes, I'm just being transparent with you, sometimes in, in, in my own moments, I think about how young I am, right? I think about how, you know, maybe I could benefit from more experience. Think about how I'm not this charismatic person like some pastors are. And sometimes I, I wonder, man, I don't know. I don't know if I could pull this off. But I, I read a passage like this and I'm reminded I don't need to be outwardly impressive for God to use me. I just have a, need to have a heart. I need to have a heart for God. And can I just encourage you tonight, church, that, that some of us, we say, oh, I could never fill in the blank. And you know, sometimes what I found, just like what I'm talking about here, is that the first person to disqualify ourselves from leading people and doing God's work is often ourselves. <laughs> and it's not that other people say, oh, they can't do it. It's that we look at ourselves and say, oh, I could never do that. I could never teach that class. I could never be a good dad. Do, do you know the dad I had growing up? We say things like that. I could never be a good mom. I didn't grow up in some Christian home like them people. But can I just remind you, you don't need to have a bundle of experience. You don't need to be outwardly impressive. You don't need to have all of these talents to be useful to God. All you need for God to use, use a heart that's submissive to him. Because you know what? God can do a lot with a person who has a heart that's submissive to him. And there's not a lot God can do with someone whose heart is hard and rebellious. And I'm encouraged when I look at this passage and I say, you know what, God? God doesn't need me to be impressive. God just needs me to be submissive. And here's, here's how else God challenged me. If we want, pay attention to this, if you want God to use you, can I just challenge you to focus on the same things God focuses on and focus on your heart. You want God to use you, focus on the heart. Hey, hey, listen, I appreciate there's a lot of talents and abilities and tenure in our church. And I appreciate the tenure that, that spiritual leaders in our church, like our deacons bring. I appreciate the tenure that some of our choirs bring to the table, some of our ministry leaders, some of our teachers. Hey, God, uh, God, I think, can use your tenure and he can use your talents. But don't forget, church leader, that what God needs the most is not your tenure and not your talents. He needs your heart. 
And sometimes we can get swelled up with pride, don't we? And we focus on the outside. Oh, if I could just be better at this. If I could just be a better preacher. I'm talking about myself. If I could just learn how to play guitar, sing a little bit better. Man, God could use me a little bit more. No, God needs your heart. And if God has your heart, and if you'll focus on your heart, and if you'll work on your heart, if you won't let sin settle in your heart, I can promise you, promise you this. God wants to use you. God wants to do something with you that is disproportionate to your background, that is disproportionate to your resume. God wants to use you for far more than you can imagine. Because God took a little red-headed shepherd boy, forgotten at Walmart boy named David, and he turned him into a king. In fact, the most impressive king in the entire history of Israel. And it's the guy that his dad forgot existed practically. So God selects this king. He's a nobody. And I don't know about you, but when I look at verses 1 through 12, I'm thinking, that's really cool, God. But it'd be really nice in our human understanding if we can connect the dots between who God chooses and how he's going to use them, right? Like it encourages me to think, oh, I don't need to be outwardly impressive, but I just need to have a good heart. But at the end of the day, that doesn't always help me feel more confident about the end destination. Are you with me? You say, oh, God wants to use me because of my heart. But then you look at the task God calls you to, and it can be intimidating. It can be intimidating. And people who are reading this text uh, or people who would have seen David at first would have thought, are you kidding me? I think that's part of the reason why God kept it a secret. Because God had to, hey, here, pay attention to this. God had to let the nation of Israel see what God saw in David. And here's the truth. When God sees something in you, God will eventually let other people see it in you as well. And so God had to do this process. And so here as, as Samuel is writing this account, here's what happens in the second half. He tells us how God selects. But then in the second half, verses 14, sorry, verses 13 through 23, here's what God is going to do through this passage. He's going to show us how God equips. God selects on a different criteria, but God equips people in a way that we don't always understand. Because it sounds a little bit like a fairy tale, but what I want you to see in the next few verses is how God does something amazing and how God prepares and equips us today when he calls us to do his work. I want you to look at verses 13 through 14. And here's the first way that God prepared David. And here's the first way that God prepares us when he selects us to do something for his glory. Here's what, here's what we find in the text, that God empowers us with his spirit. Look at verses 13 through 14. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. Now pay attention to this. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now look at verse 14. There's a, there's a deliberate contrast in the passage. But the spirit of the Lord, what's the next word? Departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. I want you to notice this, that as soon as God selected David, he empowered David. That as soon as 
he was anointed with oil. It says that the Spirit came upon David. Now, it's a little different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament, right? When we receive Christ, the Spirit indwells us. But in the Old Testament, kind of what we see is that the Spirit of God came upon people for seasons of their life because God had chosen them for something unique and special. And so as soon as David was anointed to be king, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And here's, here's the idea in the text, and we'll see this develop further in chapter 17, because da- little boy David happens to defeat giant Goliath. And here's what we see. When God selected David, he empowered David. When God selected David, he empowered David. Hey, here's the truth. David was going to need the Spirit. He had a long journey to the throne. You know how he defeat Goliath? the Spirit of God? How would he successfully command his troops in a battle and win many victories on behalf of Israel? The Spirit of God. How would he minister and serve humbly a paranoid, spear-throwing, abusive leader with a good attitude? The Spirit. How would he know where to go to escape Saul as he ran for his life? Well, what's the answer, church? The Spirit. And so we see the incredible difference the Spirit makes in David's life. But the text also shows us how big a difference it made when Saul didn't have the Spirit. Now, Saul was already a messed up guy. I mean, let's be honest. He was already irrational. But when the Spirit left Saul, here's what happened. Saul became the worst version of himself. And and if you read the whole book of 1 Samuel, I encourage you to do that sometime between now and the end of the series because it's helpful to read through books of the Bible after you hear them preach. You find this rise of Saul's leadership, but right here in verse 14 begins the downward slope. And the Saul that was already flawed on his rise, his flaws show up in more obvious ways and he becomes an absolute crazy man. In fact, verse 14 says that an evil spirit, look at verse 14, an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, there's a lot of debate out there. You know, was this a mental illness? There's so much debate there. I'm not even going to go into that. But here's the idea. That Saul was a lot worse off without the Spirit of God. He was mentally troubled. And so here's what we see in the passage that when God selects someone who's unimpressive and maybe in some ways unqualified, how does God get them from his selection to their destination? God empowers them with his spirit. He empowers them with his spirit. But here's what I'm comforted by. Hey, we don't have to be someone special and appointed for a special task to receive the spirit of God. When you got saved, when you received Jesus Christ as your savior, it doesn't matter how big of a task God has given you all of us have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And the same Spirit that came upon David is the same Spirit that lives inside of you. You say, well, I'm not not chosen to be a great leader of God's people. Well, I wouldn't underestimate your spiritual leadership, first of all. Hey, listen, you're a mom, you're a dad, you're a spiritual leader. And that is just as big of a task sometimes, isn't it? Someone give me a witness there. There's a reason I think one of the qualifications for pastoring is handling your own family, because that's a big task. Don't underestimate the spiritual leadership God has given you. You say, well, I'm just an empty nester. You know, I've got kids and grandkids. Listen, you're a spiritual leader. I would have I given anything to have grandparents who love God, who invest in my life. I would have given anything to have that. 
don't underestimate what God wants you to do. And whatever role God has placed you, whether it's leading a classroom, whether it's leading a church, whether it's leading some kids in a ministry, whether it's leading some other way, your own family, listen, how are you gonna do that? How are you gonna accomplish that? It's the same way that David did. God will empower you with his spirit. How are you gonna share the gospel and be a spiritual leader in a workplace that doesn't know Christ? It's God's spirit. How are you gonna be a spiritual leader in your home if you never had a godly father or mother? It's God's spirit. God's spirit is what will enable you to bless people in your ministry. God's spirit will enable you to share the gospel. And sometimes, listen, sometimes the only thing that qualifies us to do anything for God is God's spirit. But guess what? That's enough. That's enough. History has told thousands of stories of unimpressive men, unimpressive women, who all they were do, all they were, were submissive to God's spirit. And God used them to accomplish great things, didn't he? God empowers. When God selects, he empowers. Listen, if God's chosen you and God, has, and God has called you to do something, God will empower you. But here's the second thing we see in the text, that when God selects, he guides with his spirit. He guides with his spirit. Look at verses 15 through 23. Verse 15, And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp, and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play well with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said to his servants, verse 17, provide me, does that sound a little familiar to verse number one? Provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. So it just so happened, God chooses this redhead shepherd boy, forgotten by his daddy, kid named David. And it just so happened, Saul's mentally troubled. And one of his servants just so happened to say, you know, Saul, you've got a lot of problems, but I think we can fix them a little bit with some good music. We need to find a good old harp player. You know, someone who could really, really jam it out on the harp. We need, a, we need someone like a Daniel Thrall or a Caden, you know, jamming out on the harp. And Saul says, wow, that's a good idea. And it just so happened that one servant said, we need a harp player. And Saul said, yeah, that's a good idea. Look at verse 18. Then answered one of the servants and said, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning in playing and and now I always wonder why does he say all these things look he says he's cunning in playing that was the only qualification they needed and a mighty valiant man and a man of war and prudent in matters and a comely person and the Lord is with him this guy is impressed with David he is a fanboy of David, apparently. He says, listen, you need a harp player? I've got you a harp player. I've got you a man of war. I've got you someone that God is with because apparently God's not with you. And so we found this guy. His name is David. And here's what I'm amazed by the text. I think this is what the author's trying to show us, that you, you look at David. He's a random kid in a random family, not in the kingly family at that point. And God says, I'm going to choose you to be king. Any rational person would have said, 
well, that sounds nice, but how is a random kid from a random family, not in the king's lineage, going to end up all the way in the throne? Because there's kind of a big separation between being a king and being a shepherd. You know how? Guidance by the Spirit of God. Oh, my friend, it wasn't a just-so-happened scenario. No, no, no. God was all over this situation. Now, there's probably some time that passed between verses 14 and 15. So somehow, what God saw in David, he allowed to be known well in the nation of Israel. And again, here's something we could take comfort in. What God sees in you, God allows other people to see in you sometimes. And here's these people, they just so happen to need a harp player. And this servant just so happens to know a harp player named David. And here's what happens. Look at verse number 19. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. Here's the great irony. Saul is bringing his replacement into the palace. He doesn't even know it. And Jesse takes this donkey, loads up some gifts, sends them with David. And David stood before Saul, and the rest of the chapter archives this, that he just served Saul well. He just serves Saul well. You know what's true? When God selects, he directs. Here's what I'm comforted by. That God's spirit is fully capable of bringing you where you need to be. You know, sometimes we like to force, we like to manipulate. We think, oh, God wants me to do this, so I'm just going to maneuver my way in there. Listen, listen. God's spirit is fully capable of putting you in the right place at the right time and guiding you by his spirit. Guiding you by his spirit. You know, I, I remember just a few months ago, uh, when we went to, we had Transition Sunday, we got to make that cool video about Brother Prater. That was one of my favorite things I got to do on staff here in the last couple of years. And what I was amazed at is you walk into Fellowship Baptist Church and all you see is a product, right? You see this big building, you see people who've been saved, you see the product. And when you get down to the nitty gritty, you know what the process was that produced this building and these souls at this location? It was people who just followed the Spirit of God. Is a pastor who one day probably said to Miss Katie, I think maybe I should do something with the police department. Is that crazy? No, that'd be cool. And I don't know, a couple dozen first responders later, here we are. It's a church that tried every possible option to get out of. Wilson and expand and find somewhere they could fit all these people that are coming to Fellowship Baptist Church and being reached with the gospel. And you know what happened? God led his people by his spirit. And you know, I look back on that. I wasn't here for that history. And part of me is glad and part of me is a little sad. You know what I mean? I'm glad I didn't have to go through the 18-month program. But there's something special, isn't there, church, when you got to see God lead by his spirit. And I look back at that, and I hope some of you who weren't here as well can look back at that and say, you know what, God led Paul by his spirit. God led David by his spirit. God led a Bill Prater by his spirit. God's done this by his spirit. I think God can lead you by his spirit. I came on staff five and a half, almost five and a half years ago. We have this title, Church Planning Intern. 
Mike, where are you going to plant church? And, and short story, I would always say, basically, I don't know. You know, I've got some ideas. And, and, and uh, another short point, Garden City was never on that list, ever. <laughs> How many of you really remember that? Yeah. Where are you going to, well, you know, California, Arizona, Garden City? Nah, nah. But you know what, I, what I've, I've learned just the last couple of years? God is so capable of directing by his spirit. God put together things, and I'm not going to go over all those details because we just did that. But God put together things, listen church, that I couldn't have manufactured. And I, I had to get to the point in the decision where I had to step back and say, God did this. He brought the Kalowskis here. He brought the Swansons to Garden City. He, he brought Collins Media to Garden City and allowed me to meet people in Garden City. He gave my wife and I a desire for Western Kansas and a love for this area. And I had to step back and think, come on, Mike. Look at the Spirit. He's just guided all along the way. How, how dare I think, oh, you know, I just wish God would tell me where to plant a church. I think he's done a lot of telling. <laughs> I was talking to Brother Dwayne in the foyer a couple nights ago. I don't want to get into the details, but he was working on some business decisions. And I love this, Brother Dwayne. I won't get into the details because I didn't even ask you to share this. But he, he said, I was praying for God to just close the door. I had this idea. I had this dream and this plan. And what he was saying is, I don't want to do something if God's not in it. It's kind of like Moses. He said, God, I'm not going further in the wilderness unless you come with me. And here's what Dwayne said. I was just, just praying, God, would you please close the door? Please close the door. And he got to a point. got to a point in the decision where it's like, it seemed like God hadn't opened any doors. and didn't seem like there was any progress being made. And, he, and he's, he's saying, I prayed that day, God, would you please shut this thing down? I feel like there's no, no progress here. And he said the next day, God's spirit intervened. And God, through circumstances, made it absolutely clear this is what God wanted him to do. You know what I could promise you tonight? I wish I could expel out all the details, but I could promise you tonight, when God wants you to do something, he will direct you by his spirit. He'll direct you by his spirit. Because God's spirit is just as real to you as it is to me, as it is to David. And God wants to guide you. You know what? If God wants to use you, he'll guide you. It won't have to be this big mystery. You know what you have to do? Just be submissive to the spirit. Focus on the heart. When God selects a leader, he doesn't select a leader who's outwardly impressive. God looks for a leader who's inwardly submissive. Because if all you are, listen, if all you are is submissive to the Spirit, that gives God a lot of room to empower you by his Spirit and to direct you by his Spirit. When God selects, he empowers and he directs. That's what we see from the life of David. So as the instrumentalists come for our invitation tonight, here's what I think, that, I think here's what we should do. We should do three things. <clears throat> our invitation is three things. It's a change in mindset. Right? Because, because sometimes, right, we, we look at people with a different set of lenses than, than God does. And sometimes God just needs to change our mindset. And maybe for some of us, it's some encouragement. God... I've been doubting myself. I thought there's no way I can do this. But maybe tonight, maybe tonight, God reminded you, you don't need to be outwardly impressive. 
All you have to do is be spiritually submissive. And maybe you'd pray tonight, God, would you use me? Would you direct me by your spirit? God, I'm going to try and be as submissive as possible. But Lord, would you please direct me? Would you direct me who to invite to Easter Sunday? Would you direct me who to share the gospel with? Would you direct me in how to lead my children? God, would you direct me how to lead my ministry? God, would you direct me? You know, all you need to do is just be spiritually submissive and God will direct you. You say, well, this is, this is too big for me. Big shoes to fill. Well, if you're just spiritually submissive, you know what I can promise you? God will empower you. God will empower you. And so here's what you need to do. Maybe take heart, take encouragement that God's, God will use you if you're submissive. And here's the last thing. Maybe the challenge tonight is this. And here's how God also challenged me. He encouraged me and he challenged me. Sometimes God does that, right? And sometimes I can become so focused on the external. Oh, I've got this, I've got this. Let me work on this. And all the while, I don't work, work on my heart. And I would imagine, I would imagine that God needs to do some work on some hearts. Maybe there's some sin that God needs to chisel off. There's some pride. God needs to sand off your heart. You know what? Listen, there may not be any devastating consequences for the sin that's in your heart, the things that you're holding on to, but I can promise you this. If you'll just deal with your heart, God wants to use you. You just got to deal with your heart. Because when God looks for someone to do his work, he looks for someone who is spiritually submissive to him. Let's stand together tonight. Father, I'm